In a week where Infantino has claimed the greatest group stage of all time, we have a sobering reminder of the blood that stains this tournament. A migrant worker is said to have died in a team hotel and stories released of a Qatari whistleblower being tortured whilst in prison for speaking out about the safety standards and appearing in ITV's documentary. All then excused by a PR man who showed all the remorse that you would depressingly expect. Of course, we will eventually talk about the football, but these headlines deserve to come first, I think. Welcome to the Anglo-Italian pod. As always, my name is Rory and I'm joined by my very good friend, Adam, and we have a special guest. Mark, how are you doing? Um, thanks for coming on to the show. Um, a bit of a depressing start, but we'll get through it. How are you today? Are you good? Where are you calling us from? I'm good. I'm calling you from Aberdeen. We have <clears throat> snow outside, so um, yeah, hiding in hiding in the warmth tonight. Very nice. Winter's definitely arrived up in Scotland then. Um, so you're an Aberdeen what, fan what as well, right? <laughs> yeah, very true. I am, yes. Very true. I am, yes. Aberdeen fan, long time Aberdeen. I do a bit of media work as well with them for their women's team. So I do all their, cover all their games and match interviews and reports and things. So, yeah. Nice. Um, and how, uh, how are all things bed, so Aberdeen? Um, and how are all things Aberdeen at the moment? I know the Scottish League's a bit difficult if it's not Celtic or Rangers. How are Aberdeen doing this season? Yeah, they've had a, they've had a difficult kind of start to the season, a bit unpredictable. They, they're kind of up and down. They've had some great results and some poor results. So it's been a bit of a, a bit of a roller coaster as the new manager tries to settle in the, the squad and new players. Very nice. Um, Adam, how are you doing today? You are with us. Uh, how are you? Yeah, keeping very well. Busy week. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to kind of talk. It's not just the football, right? There's been a lot of spin-offs like Samuel Leto uh, clashing with a fan. And then we've also got Mikniewicz Ball, who uh, continues to dominate the Polish news. But uh, I'm sure we'll get into it in due course. So uh, more importantly, Rory, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, I'm good, thanks. Um, we've had two days of public holiday in Italy, which is nice, but it has coincided with the two days where there's been no World Cup football. So that's really irritating because <laughs> um, now I have to go to work tomorrow and miss games, which is going to be very irritating. But apart from that, all good. Went to a World Fair, had lots of food. That was great. And now ready to talk about football. Um, so I think... I think let's start with the light-hearted stuff and then we'll go to the dark stuff. So let's go with Cheswav Ball. Let's go with some Miknovich <laughs> and give us an update on Bielsa to Poland. Yeah, so it's quite bizarre because if you count yourself a few days back, obviously Poland's kind of had this incredible performance against France at the beginning of the week, so to speak. Um, so anyway... Um, they're going back to their natural kind of clubs slash back to her home in Poland. Um, so it all starts off with um, the Polish Prime Minister, uh, Mateusz Morowski, who um, decided to uh, give the national team a incentive, essentially a bonus. Um, so 30 million Polish slotties, uh, which equivalent is about 5.5 million in UK pounds, which, you know, not bad. it's not bad. Um, but as you can imagine, the living crisis and everything, um, the fact that Poles haven't been given any kind of state support um, has rattled the Polish nation, um, especially as they don't believe this national team deserves to get any rewards for their performances in the first <laughs> rounds in particular. Um, then there was rumours about a clash between Mikniewicz and Lewandowski, where Mikniewicz believes that 
the split of the money should be shared with the staff quite equally amongst the players and the staff. Um, so then a few days later, it transpires that there's been a clash between Miknevich and the Polish president, which is Cesary Kulesha, even, sorry. So the clash has been over a number of different elements. So not only about the reward of the 30 million Zloty uh, rewards, but also around the fact that Mikniewicz decided to have the players' families alongside him in Qatar, which Kulesha was against. Um, Mikniewicz decided that was kind of a more morale kind of mm -hmm. boosting element, make sure that the players were motivated, they had their families by their side. Um, for some reason, Kulesha didn't believe in that. And then also, as we exited the tournament, tournament should I say, Poland that is, um, Mikniewicz decided to give 14 of the players a rest, which, you know, for some of those players, they probably had a long season already. Mm -hmm. They probably had a long two years, in fairness. Um, and it transpired that only 14 of the playing squads returned back to Warsaw to meet the Prime Minister and President, oh, wow. which didn't go down very well. Um, at this kind of meeting between the Prime Minister and the President, it was leaked that one of the players jokes about the fact that they get paid in Euros and not in Polish Slotties, <laughs> due good. to the fact that the Polish Slottie isn't doing quite oh, well against God. various different currencies, so that didn't go too well. <laughs> um, and then, just to tie it all off, um, Mikniewicz obviously has it's been rumored that because of his progression to the latter stages for the first time in you know 36 years that poland had progressed it was automatically renewed um now the polish fa are deciding to review this now it's been announced tonight that they're going to have talks over the weekend and have a series of conversations with mikniewicz next week Mikniewicz has gone to the press today to say he is not going to resign. Um, oh, wow. In the last 48 hours, there's been a few names circulated. Uh, the one that you alluded to, Bielsa, <laughs> that's a very random one. But for Polish fans, first came about pre-tournament of the World Cup that he gave his own kind of first choice 11 for the Poland squad which kind of was like a bit of random kind of element, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but it was one of those where you kind of go, okay, cool. So he's got some sort of interest. They dived into it. And Bielsa said that he would like to manage the Polish national team one day. Um, anyway, this is so random. I think it's yeah. a job that's like suitably niche enough for Bielsa that yeah. it would be like, I think nobody, people would be both surprised and not surprised if it was announced tomorrow, Bielsa appointed <laughs> <laughs> Poland. If you were like, oh yeah, of course, why didn't I see that timeline arriving? It kind of makes sense. It would be very exciting. And we've talked about an attacking team with a lot of attacking talent, with players that are quite exciting. I think Bielsa would be a very good manager to get the most out of that. Mm. Um, how realistic do you think that that is? Mark, I'm going to talk, ask you about your thoughts on Poland in the World Cup at the uh, in a minute. But Adam, how popular do you think or how likely do you think the Bielsa ties are? How realistic? I don't know. Um, because I think he's been swanning it back at home in Argentina, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so yeah, I don't yeah. know how realistic that is. Um, but 
I suspect it's a project, right? I think that this is kind of projects where managers get to a certain age and they seem to like just be happy managing these kind of nations and yeah, you yeah, know yeah. not have to do with the day-to-day work, which maybe it suits Bielsa. Maybe it'd be with the agreement of Polish FA, he'll be able to spend time in Argentina and then turn back for yeah. you know duties, perhaps. Um, there is definitely a cry from Polish fans to have someone that's a bit more total football. Um, okay. The press were quite um, deflammatory of the style of Mikniewicz, let's put it that way. I mean, that's probably lightly. Yeah, yeah, well, we were as well, right? I think most (laughs) of the world were kind of cursing at Poland, to be fair, about the bleach in their eyes from it. But um, yeah, I mean, we definitely do crave something better. I think we're just embarrassed. I think the best phrase that was kind of picked up by a Polish press was, in decades to come, we will never tell our children about this squad and how they achieved the next round because wow. they're embarrassed about it. They're just purely embarrassed about the style of football that we achieved in the World Cup. And they take the France game as a pinch of salt. Um, okay. So it's one of those. Anyway, just to kind of round it up, obviously the likely names also thrown into hat, Roberto Martinez, <laughs> Andrei Shevchenko today. Nice. Um, there has been a real big rumour that went about, which was around a Polish manager who is manager of Wisła Pok. They are currently mm-hmm. like pushing their weight, I suppose. They're fifth in the extra classer, and his name is Maciej Potoszek, even. So um, I don't know too much about him. I don't know about his credentials, but by all accounts, he is a total football man in terms okay. of the like playing the philosophy. I think Polish fans do want to see a bit more kind of a blend of football like total yeah, football yeah. but winning it the right way if that makes sense i think yeah, we've seen think... teams like the australians etc mm-hmm. trying to play it and you know there's going to be occasions where you can't play that total football but i think we just wanted a bit more heart at the tournament from mm-hmm. a Polish fan perspective so yeah i mean i'll pass it on to mark to yeah mark, it was it was kind of like a running joke on our podcast obviously that adam's kind of Polish heritage, we get like to keep an eye an eye on Poland. It was a running joke across the pod, just how terrible they were to watch. What did you make of Poland across the tournament? Do you <laughs> think that squad is capable of more? It's difficult. It's difficult to tell from a few games because there were the results were kind of really strange and unpredictable. You had the the kind of no no with Mexico in the first game. I, I think maybe if they had the the win in the first game. In the second game, it might be totally different to them. And I think that quite a lot goes on the the order of who you play the teams in these groups. You know, they had the Argentina last, so they kind of knew they had to get their games. And I think it dropped into this game. It's, but um, yeah, it's it's tournament football. As I say, that you know, it's not about the performances, but it's about kind of winning games and getting through. But I think if you don't get through, um, and you don't play great football, then Mm. Kind of, they both cancel each other out. I think you can only get away with it if you're kind of having success, can you? Well, that's it. I think people were willing to accept it because of, or willing, more willing to accept it because they did get through the group. But I think you also forget that the team in 1986, right, the team that got to the quarterfinals, yeah. they did play really great football. And like Boniek is like a, a football mm. legend, not just yeah. Polish football legend. Like they did play great football. And I think when you're compared to a squad like that, which is since lionized because it's been such a long time it's only going to make it more stark, the difference, isn't it? But fingers crossed, Poland are able to get an exciting manager who's able to get a bit more out of these these attacking players um, because mm. I think for the next Euros, they could be a really exciting team. 
for the next year. I think they could be a team to keep an eye on. But before we go to the Qatar World Cup, we need to talk about Samuel Eto'o and <laughs> him getting in a scrap outside the ground. They've been saying that this is a calm tournament. There's no alcohol, no fighting. While Samuel Eto'o's brought the violence. And to be honest, I think it was quite... My first impression, I was like, kind of on Eto's side. Now, I'll give you my kind of reasoning why. Yeah. And we can talk about the kind of thing around it. But I think if you, the internet has made people unafraid of getting punched in the face. They're used to just saying what they like and having no repercussions. And yeah. this guy, now from what I've read, there's been like a basically an orchestrated online harassment of Samuel Eto ever since the Algeria Cameroon uh, Algeria Cameroon yes. game, right? Yeah. 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 And I always get Cameroon and Senegal mixed up every single time. Algeria and Cameroon. Um and it's kind of been an orchestrated online attack. And then this guy outside the stadium asks him and Samuel Eto very clearly tells him to go away. He then shoves the camera in his face and continues to hassle him. I think at that point, if the guy wants to hit you, it's your own fault. Um now, it all stems back to the game against, um, it was the World Cup qualifier. There was a really yeah. terrible refereeing performance from Gassama, I think his name was. Yes. Um, there was two goals disallowed, a goal given that shouldn't have been disallowed, that should mm. have been disallowed. Um, it was an awful refereeing performance, and there was a lot of, of decisions that were contentious. The Algerian FA went to FIFA and, and to CAF and tried to say, we want to play the game again. They saw nothing wrong with it we can go into what we think, how accurate we think that is, but I don't think it should be for the fans to then try and take it into their own hands and harass players outside the stadium. Like, I, I'll go to you first, Mark. What did you think when you saw this? Personally, I started laughing, I'll be honest. But Yeah, I think it, it is one of those that you kind of, you see the wee clip and you, and you kind of laugh about it, but then you kind of remember that how how stressed out and harassed is Eto feeling at, if he's willing to go to that point, mm-hmm. um, it's clearly having an impact on him. It's clearly getting to him. Um, you don't know as well if he's potentially had any kind of run with that particular person in the past. So um, it's difficult. There's maybe more more to that um, little coming together than mm-hmm. than the eye. But um, yeah, I think he certainly seemed to um, strike him with a good right foot volley. <laughs> Properly booted him, that's for sure. (laughs) He made a good connection with him. Um, But yeah, Adam, what do you think of it? Because I remember the game at the time. I think we maybe talked about it as like a contentious thing for the World Cup qualifiers. The refereeing performance was genuinely shocking. Um, But I don't think Samuel Eto'o had anything to do with it, right? Probably not, no. Um, (laughs) Probably not. Uh, I stress that because he's part of FIFA, so you have to put that asterisk, (laughs) yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I've been watching a little bit of that documentary on Netflix. You could never kind of guarantee it. But um, yeah, I think Eto has almost a duty just to kind of ignore it. But I appreciate what your sentiments are. I probably, if it's anyone in the public and you're getting harassed by someone, you, you probably would give it some as well, mm. to be fair. Probably wouldn't do it in the same way Eto did it, though, in fairness. Um, but I would definitely be like harassing them and saying, you know, do one basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, 
I don't think he'll be invited to the next game. Let's put it this way. I don't think he'll be there for a little while uh, as a representative of FIFA for this World Cup because ultimately he's an ambassador for this World Cup as well. So I think that'll be taken away from him right now. Um, he, uh, the apology, though, was kind of half-assed as well. Yeah, it was. Fair. He didn't. It yeah. was kind of a, like an acknowledgement. But he went, um, this is what he put, he went, um, Algeria must stop its unhealthy climate, kind of, putting it diplomatically, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, just leave it now, basically. Yeah. But um, yeah. yeah. Well, we can all I agree, mean, as, as far as bad PR for this tournament goes, it's definitely not up there with the worst. Um, <laughs> and we need to get onto that, unfortunately. So in this week, uh, as I alluded to in the intro... Infantino has claimed that this was the greatest group stage of all time, ignoring the fact that this is going to be the last 36-team World Cup and next time it's going to be 48, um, therefore mm. getting rid of this fantastic group stage. That's not the worst thing that's come out this week. It has been revealed that a migrant worker um, lost his life working in one of the team hotels. I think it was for the Saudi Arabia team. Um, it was claimed that there was no safety equipment or not enough safety equipment. There was two people on a three-person job. And the PR guy um, has come out and said, death is a part of life. Um, we're having a, yeah, we're having a successful World Cup and this is something you want to talk about right now. Death is natural part of life, whether at work, whether in your sleep, a worker died, our condolences, but it's strange. It is something you want to focus on as your first question. Now it's, it's getting harder and harder to ignore these things. And on this pod, we're actively trying not to ignore these things. We're trying to keep on top of it and kind of talk about it as much as we can. But just how how much worse is it that they seem to have no willingness to accept any responsibility? Like, um, Adam, I'm going to go for you first, and then Mark will get your thoughts. It, it just stings a little bit more that there's not even like a slight show of kind of remorsefulness or anything. Yeah, definitely. It feels like that there is a silence being bought at FIFA because mm -hmm. there's the case that you rightly um, pulled up on our WhatsApp group, which was the case of Abdullah Abhais, who's obviously, there's going to be a documentary on ITV. Um, so I won't steal your thunder, Rory, on this, but mm -hmm. essentially as part of that, he called out a lot of the abuses of workers in the process of building stadiums for example these workers weren't getting paid on time there was no water for them like yeah, yeah. bearing in mind the heat they must have been working in and um yeah he kind of you know reined it in and kind of raised it to the fifa committee who practically ghosted him and then just yeah he was then essentially jailed himself um mm -hmm. on different grounds this is what the qataris have kind of you know done that kind of little slice of yeah it wasn't because of this it was because of that um mm -hmm. and they've got around it and now obviously he's been abused in these prison himself um and it yeah i just it, it stinks of a hypocrisy from mm -hmm. infantina when he talks about before the world cup that this was about trying to raise um, the voices of those that are oppressed, for example, and he's definitely silenced it. And you know, he feels like he is every nation, he is every person. Like yeah. it's just like you can't be every person if you're taking a blind eye to it. And it's not the first time, obviously, FIFA have done this, right? Um, I appreciate a lot of people have kind of said, 
we're wokes. We didn't kind of call it out when it was Russia, mm. but yeah, you, we did call it out when it was Russia. The it was, was yeah. it wasn't to maybe the same degree in terms of the matters and the issues that are being highlighted in Qatar. Um, mm. It's been for decades, unfortunately. And yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, we've got a poisoned organization in FIFA. So mm. um what about you? I mean, obviously, we've said about you introducing it, but what's your thoughts as well? It just, I don't know, it's, obviously, all of it's awful, and, like, the the guy, when you hear about what happened to Abdullah in the prison, it was, like, it's tortured, basically. It's left in an air-conditioned room with minus, minus temperatures for prolonged mm. periods of time. It's physically beaten. It's everything you can imagine of, and it is... That yeah, the reason they're saying is because he didn't fulfill a contract that he agreed with them. Like even so, even if he did do yeah. that, this is not <laughs> the, the the crime doesn't fit the punishment, right? I think yeah. what we're realizing is that with Russia, it was talked about, not to the same degree. You're right, but then I think this World Cup coming straight after the Russian World Cup just meant that there was a bit of momentum in terms of like what the hell is going on with the World Cup, what the hell's going mm. on with FIFA, and it's all led to this kind of steam train that's coming through now and everything's been talked about which is fantastic it's great mm. we'll see if it makes a difference in terms of selecting countries in the future because saudi arabia are still being dubbed for a world cup within the next like within the next few so we'll see if it makes a difference but i think it's just really important that people keep talking about it in terms of anything changing at fifa i'm not convinced i think infantino is much much worse than blatter and maybe mm. it's better the devil you know than the better, the one you don't right um I don't know, Mark, how do you feel about these stories and the like? The fact it's been talked about so much is kind of positive, but then it just is so depressing constantly, right? Yeah, I think it's really difficult, isn't it, for anyone kind of involved in football or just any kind of football fan loves watching the World Cup, but they've got this shadow that doesn't normally hang around um, in the background. So everyone's kind of caught in this. Should we speak about it? Should we not speak about it? Do you, do you boil caught the tournament like it's happening and, and how you how you fit that in and you kind of only have to go online and to social media to see the difficulties where you know the differences of opinion of some people saying that you know it's being too much of a light's being shine on shone on it and you should keep the political side out of things but um i think it's an opportunity i don't think you know it, people are if people are dying during the tournament because of bad practices around the tournament and you know how much money has been sunk into the tournament i think that really needs to be kind of brought up and brought to the fore because mm. um as the spokesman said it's tried to the carpet but you know it's it's not a it's not a slight glitch it's not a um a 20 minute queue to get in the stadium that shouldn't be there you know it's people are losing mm. their lives and it's not the only one in the in the process of the, the preparations for this World Cup. So I do think it's important that people um, speak about it and these things are reported. Mm. I think it's something that we've never been faced with before, like this level of it. And yeah. I think there's a lot of people talking about, you know, there has been improvements in Qatar since they were awarded it. And I'm sure there has been. I'm sure things aren't as bad as 10 years ago, 12 years ago when they were awarded it. But mm. the point is, it's not been improved enough. And you can't just go, okay, well done. You've done, you've done a bit. No, there needs to be more. There needs to be more. And I think like in terms of like the select, 
activity of the protest, which protests are okay and which protests aren't as well, is a really stark yeah. thing. I think it is incredible, and it never would have happened in Europe, that there are Palestinian flags everywhere. It's becoming a whole <laughs> meme of people screaming free Palestine into cameras. I love it. It's amazing. It would never have happened if that was in a Europe, if it was in a European country. That being said, that protest being allowed to happen, but anything with a rainbow flag being completely banned mm. and that one's not allowed, again, shows the complete hypocrisy that we're seeing from FIFA repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. I think there's a lot of like um, discussions, even more discussions to be had after this World Cup. But I think what the, the, the main positive thing of this is that even casual viewers of football... And even people who love football but don't pay attention to politics will at least now know a little bit more about it and just yeah. by proxy will understand what's happening more and hopefully care a bit more. So hopefully there'll be some kind of sea change afterwards. Um, but the first mm. thing is to get Infantino out of office. However that happens, I'm not sure. I'm thinking of just running for FIFA president myself. I'm not sure what... <laughs> What, what what's kind the of criteria things? yeah <laughs> i'm gonna research and just be like right you know what you officially have some opposition um because that someone has to go against them i'm just not sure how it works um but we're gonna kind of leave those stories here and kind of keep you up to date when and when and where we can um but for now we're going to talk about some amazing football and some incredible yeah. knockout ties and actually talk about the game we love and we're going to talk i think we're going to start with no ronaldo no problem. <laughs> All of a sudden, Portugal go from looking like a fairly unimpressive team to potential winners of a tournament. And all it took was to put one man-child on the bench. Who'd have thought it? Fernando Santos finally kind of makes a tough decision. It's kind of forced on him, the decision, I think, because of Ronaldo's behavior. But they absolutely destroy a Switzerland team that looked really, really competent up until mm. this point. Looked like they could cause anyone problems. This was anything but a contest. Um, Adam, I'm going to get your thoughts first. Portugal, Switzerland, what did you make of it? Uh, I didn't expect that scoreline, that's for sure, to start <laughs> yeah. off with. But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, a new star was born. Gonzalo Ramos, like, where was he? I mean, I think we both kind of said, where is he? Who is he? <laughs> like, where has this happened? Like, um, because prior to this kind of game, he'd only played like 30 minutes for Portugal. So, this kind of shows you it's kind of very raw. Um, there was a lot of hype around him at Benfica. And mm -hmm. I think Benfica were kind of proud of the fact that they got rid of Nunes and kept him, which kind of says a lot about him. Um, I know um, if you remember Vinicius, who used to play for Spurs, but he was bought mm -hmm. from Benfica. He kind of said he was the kind of striker that he would not leave a ball like untouched in the sense of it wouldn't be in the area. It'd always be in the back of the net. There was always oh, wow. that kind of potential around him and boy, did he show it. I mean, I think that was almost like the, almost the perfect kind of hat trick that you could have like asked for apart from it. He didn't header it. Right. But even that third one where he chipped it so delicately over his summer summer was incredible. Like, but mm. even the first one just with his left peg and he just blasted it into the top corner. Um, I've always felt with Portugal, though, I don't know about you, Rory, but I always feel like they would play better without Ronaldo because Ronaldo is an ego. And for years bygone, they were always reliant on Ronaldo because he was the man that would help them out. He was yeah. the man to give them the quality, whereas we know what he's been like for Man United and Juventus over the last few seasons. He's just that egotistical twat up front that yeah. everyone you have to <laughs> pump the ball up to. Whereas Portugal, actually, when you take that out, 
they play so much better. They play so much more fluidly and they seem much more, I don't know about you, but I thought they were much more relaxed. They didn't seem yeah. to like have that kind of stress. What, what did you think about it, Rory? I think they looked like, yeah, the kind of shackles had been taken off to a degree. They were like um, energetic. They were attacking. They were mm. vibrant. They were like expressive. It was, I always felt about this Portugal team and I kind of always put it down to Fernando Santos, really, that he was a bit yeah. of a conservative, boring manager. They ne- that They never played particularly exciting football. But once they had someone in Ronaldo's position, Ronaldo's position that was able to actually run and be dynamic and able to press and cover mm. ground, you saw the change immediately. Now, we've said for ages, Portugal have got an incredible squad with so much talent, so much talent in that squad. And I think a lot of depth, even on the bench, we've talked about England's depth on the bench. I think Portugal's depth is right up there, like bringing on Rafa Leao, and he just scores yeah. that incredible goal at the end. Now, obviously, we love Liao. We watch him in Serie A every week. We know how great he is. But having someone like him to just come off the bench, it's kind of last episode we made the point about England with, oh, you just bring on Grealish and, and um, Rashford, whatever. I think Portugal kind of have that as well. As I'll just bring mm. on Liao. Just bring on this guy. Bring on the light. And, they, and they've got a lot of depth. And maybe just Ronaldo not being there. And Ronaldo acting like a child and not turning up for training or whatever it was has actually done his country a favor. I think it would be very funny and quite poetically beautiful if Portugal won it with Ronaldo on the bench. I would really enjoy that. Um, As much as I would like to see England win it, I would really enjoy that happening. Um, Mark, what do you think of this Portugal team? They've all of a sudden, they're being talked about as favorites, This or not favorites, kind of second, third favorites. A week ago, nobody was saying this, right? Yeah, I think I tweeted out during that game that um, Portugal are an infinitely more likable team for some reason. I, <laughs> I, was, I, I, was, I was being a wee bit facetious, but actually they were because yeah. they were a lot better to watch than they had been. They were entertaining, they were, um, they were attacking, and I really enjoyed them. And I did for the first time kind of think well, they might have a chance of, of going to the final. When you look at the, <clears throat> they're probably in the preferable half of the draw. Yeah. Um, for mm. that respect, albeit that they'll they'll have a difficult semi final, but um, I think that I think Ronaldo's been a problem the past couple of years, hasn't he? He was a problem towards the end of his time at Juventus. He's been a problem at Manchester United. <clears throat> I think um, particularly Manchester United realised that they were better without him in the team, and um, I think he's maybe been surviving by his own numbers and his own stats rather than the the team's stats and it's it's the old favorite of no no one players bigger than the team and i think that's what's happened at man united and that's what's happened with portugal as well i think um he was maybe just too big a character um and it maybe took, took the light away from some of the other players and now that he's gone they can kind of step out of his shadow a wee bit and they're maybe a little bit more free like that, right? Yeah, I think no, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think I was also on the same hand. I was very disappointed by Switzerland. I know they were kind of forced into a tactical kind of system change. They were forced into a five at the back because of the injuries, and they were playing in a shape that I think in the past they know they've not done particularly well in. So I think the kind of the chips kind of fell quite well for Portugal as well. But I think it's such a after what was, uh, I think, quite an impressive performance against Serbia to kind of like keep getting, like, you know, getting pegged back and still getting that goal, pegged back, score again. I was surprised to not see 
more fight from Switzerland, not just Granite Xhaka mm. holding his bollocks at the bench, but some <laughs> actual like fight on the pitch. I was kind of a little bit disappointed that they went out quite quietly. Like, um, what did you think, Mark? Like, did you expect more from Switzerland? Yeah, I did a bit. It was. It did seem quite a quite a meek departure, given the the ball ground that went on in the previous game. Um, but yeah, I was. I was. I actually was kind of thinking that Switzerland were going to were going to knock Portugal out, um, or at least get something from the game um, when they, we came up against them. Um, uh, they're a strange kind of team, Switzerland. I found them really difficult to work out with this World Cup because um, they could look really, really good in spells, but the kind of those spells seem to be never over the whole game. So. They were, they were mm-hmm. a frustrating kind of team, I found. But yeah, I did. I, I was expecting a wee bit more from them in that game. Yeah, I, I, Adam, what did you think? I thought they had a bit more quality, a bit more kind of discipline than that performance showed. Yeah, I thought they would uh, maybe not be as open as perhaps like Portugal made it seem like. And I don't know whether it's a combination of Portugal were just seemingly up for this match like they seem to be unshackled by not having to play it to Ronaldo and play their own natural game but then yeah I I thought they'd be a bit more disciplined as well in terms of Switzerland Uh, we know about the qualities of Mbolo for example I thought Xhaka was quieter in this particular match I thought he had a lot more control in the previous round Um, Shakiri, I didn't find he did too much Uh, that could be a generalization of his general play, though, to be fair. Um, and then, yeah, defensively, I thought they were so easy. Like, it felt like Fabian Shah had his worst game of the tournament. Like, mm-hmm. and Fabian Shah has had a fantastic season with Newcastle, um, not just with Switzerland as well. So, to see how easy it was for the likes of Gonzalo um, Ramos to kind of go in front of him for that second goal. I mean, it was a bit like worrying that he was going to have this game. But again, maybe it was also a bit of tiredness. Um, That's what we probably have to give. And maybe Switzerland as well. I I mean, if you offered them the last kind of 16, I think they would have taken it prior to the tournament starting off. Um, I think there's promising signs about, you know, Switzerland's um, Okafor, who came off the bench yeah. a few times. I think he'll be a good player in years to come. With Mbolo, I feel like he's maybe one or two seasons away from playing for a bigger club if he continues mm-hmm. that kind of performance levels as well. Because I think, yeah, like we said kind of before in our previews and various reviews, he was in Germany for most of his like career so far, and then he's been in Monaco. So whether this helps him out in terms of being more prolific, hopefully. I mean, he's all got all the attributes. I think he yeah. showed it in his World Cup. Um, but yeah, I mean, Switzerland obviously being marshaled by the um, ex-player Murat Yakin, who I used to love those Yakin brothers for Basel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hakan and Murat. Yeah, 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 exactly. They were blast from the past. So I, I feel like there's a, something enthusiastic, maybe something's brewing for Switzerland, mm-hmm. but maybe this is a tournament where we didn't see the potential just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and years to come, we might be saying, oh, Switzerland, I remember those players, and they might be building on that. So um, mm-hmm. they did well, but yeah, for this match, I think a bit disappointing. And finally on Switzerland, for, for United fans, just as they were linked to Jan Sommer, he dropped the worst performance I've ever seen him have in the <laughs> yeah. World Cup. And I thought, oh, that's why United are looking at him. There you go. Now it makes <laughs> sense. Now it makes sense. 
But we do need to move on to the team that Portugal are going to be facing. And that is, of course, Morocco. And to do that, we're going to go to friend of the show, Basri, as he reacts immediately after that incredible <laughs> win for Morocco. It's the best night ever. It's happiness everywhere here in Morocco. We are really happy. Everyone is happy. Everyone is smiling. Everyone hugs everyone. Everyone is really proud of this national team. We were crying by happiness. We were really crying. Everyone was crying by happiness. We are in the quarterfinal. That's mind-blowing. That's really mind-blowing for everyone. I told you in the, in the first podcast that we believe in our national team. We have great players. We have many fighters. They are great players who play with big teams in Europe and they are fighters as well. And they love their country. And now here we are in the quarterfinal for the first time in the history of the whole of Arab world. And we are only the fourth team ever in Africa to be in this round. And now we have every right to dream. We are really close to be in the semi-final. Can you believe this? We are really close to the semi-final. We need to play by the same way, by the same heart against Portugal. And I'm sure, I'm sure that we're going to fight back. We're going to fight back against Ronaldo and co. So it's hard to describe what's happening here in Morocco. Not only in Morocco, but everywhere, in every African country, in every Arabic country, and in every country in the whole world because Moroccans are everywhere and they are celebrating from Montreal in Canada to Milano in Italy to Paris to Dubai everywhere everywhere the Moroccans are really 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 happy and it's not a night to, to sleep it's not the right time to sleep it's fabulous you can see some videos of the king himself the king himself is celebrating with its people we never saw that before it's really mind-blowing and we are happy. We are really happy. We made it through a difficult drop. I told you on the first podcast that I, I believe, not only me, but everyone here in Morocco believes in Bono, believes in Hakimi, believes in Ziyech. And now we are making history. That's the word. We are making history. We made it through a difficult drop and we made it through in, in the penalty uh, penalties against Spain, against Spain. Against Spain, we know they are her. They are the closest uh, European country to, to 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 Morocco. But it's a derby. It was really difficult, but we made it through, and we are happy. And it's the biggest night and the most happiest night in my life, in everyone's life, in every Moroccan life. So we are really proud. And as Walid Regragi, our coach, which is the first African coach who made it through to the quarterfinal, we still believe. We still believe. Like the song, like the official song of FIFA, we are the dreamers. Yeah, the song is about us. We are the dreamers and I hope that we'll keep fighting till the end. Till the end, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. Honestly, when I got that voice note, I just had the biggest smile on my face. Like, Basri, thank <laughs> yeah. you for that. It was incredible. Just see, and like, these are the stories of the World Cup that you love. This is why you love the World Cup, right? A country like Morocco, and I have to admit, like, when we did the preview episodes, when we did the preview shows, he was talking about how great this Morocco side was. And I was like, ah, 
in the back of my head, I was like, okay, it's a fan getting a bit overexcited about his team. And like, you know, I, I don't know how much I believe in this, the quality of this team. But then the more you've seen them play and then the more the names do kind of jump out and you're like, oh, actually, they mm. have got Masraoui who plays first choice for Bayern Munich. They have got Amrabat who now everybody's seeing how good that guy is and mm. I don't think he'll be at Fiorentina much longer. Like they have got ZH, they have got Akimi, and all of a sudden the names do come out. This is a squad with a lot of quality and I think more importantly, incredibly well coached. Like yeah. the, the performance they put in against Spain just they never lost their shape and Spain were going to get onto and what was wrong with them but I think no matter what Spain did the players never lost their shape they just shifted across stayed on the job and played the football they've played the entire tournament low block catch a team on the break and I think their xg with alongside Spain was basically 0.01 difference across the 90 minutes like they created like as many and as dangerous chances as Spain Spain did nothing <laughs> except pass the ball. And Morocco, I think, rightfully got through. Like, the penalties were incredible. I love Hakimi penenkering the country <laughs> of his birth out of the World Cup. It's just unbelievable, like, the, the, the amount of balls that takes. Um, but, Adam, I'm going to go to you first. Morocco, Amrabat, how impressed have we been? Uh, yeah, I kind of called it. I said this would be the yeah, shot. I did, did call did, it. I said did. said this would be the way it would go. Uh, maybe not in a fashion, but certainly that Morocco would win this. Uh, I'm just happy. I mean, Basri kind of summed it up, just like how joyous that moment was. Mm -hmm. It was like you can't help but have that little smile for them. Like mm -hmm. they, they were just so exciting prior to this round. They played a bit more pragmatic, it has to be said, but... You know, they absorbed what Spain threw at them, which wasn't a lot, it has to be said. It was just, yeah, making sure they kind of tied themselves out by trying to kind of do their passing moves and then just kind of counterattack them. And I, I thought they were unlucky on occasions. Kodira, in extra time, had that chance smothered mm -hmm. by Simon, for example. But even when you went into penalties, it felt like they were confident. Like, from that first kick, like... I just felt like, wow, okay, so Spain missed, then it was Morocco, and the way he kind of just turned up, it just didn't seem like it dawned on them that this is penalty shootouts. It was <laughs> like they were just going, we're going to win this. And yeah, there was yeah. that confidence about Bono, who obviously Basri calls out, uh, mm. you know, it was his third game. Like, he hasn't played every game in this tournament. But it's incredible. It, just how they seem to work together. And when you look at the names, yes, you have got the like the likes of Zayic, but you've got players that are playing in the French League, like, mm -hmm. like you know, the second division of the French League. So they're not even in playing for the big clubs as well. Like... We've, we've talked about players like Ilias Chair, who's playing in the championship. He hasn't yeah, really yeah. turned up yet. The Chadira, who we know from Bari as well. It's great to see him on the pitch. For yeah, once, but, I mean, yeah. again, he hasn't, he hasn't really featured that much. So it just goes to show you the strength they've got in their first 11 and just the way they play, just fight for each other. And that's kind mm -hmm. of the, what's been instilled by the manager. And it's great that they've actually got a homegrown manager, an ex-player, who's kind of building this philosophy. He, he's kind of alluded to the fact that they might not play total football in the next round, which is like, we know they can play it, but I think he's also a bit more pragmatic. He knows who they're going to face. So he's just going to make it difficult. And mm -hmm. do you know what? I, I got this funny feeling about Morocco. They could, could pull it off. And that would be agreeable. We have just talked about how amazing Portugal are, but I do still have a feeling about Morocco. Mark, what's impressed you most about Morocco? Which players have stood out? Um, 
Yeah. And how surprised have you been by them? I have been surprised and <clears throat> feel a bit stupid, really, because probably shouldn't have been surprised when you look at some of the players that you're mentioning there. And mm -hmm. kind of, I think pre-tournament, I think countries like Morocco are always kind of almost forgotten about. And I think it's so it's so uncommon to see a, a real shock kind of team go deep into a tournament nowadays. And um and I think that's what I've enjoyed most about it. And that, that clip of, of Basri there is a big smile on my face. Listen, how how brilliant was that listening to, listening to him and, and how he feels about it. And I think that you get that from watching Morocco, I think, as well. You get the sense that, you know, they've got a lot of fans there. <clears throat> the team are feeding off of that. And, and as as you said, Adam, when it went to penalties, I I, I all kind of think the underdogs have got a advantage when it goes to penalties because you know they're, they're they weren't expected to to win so they've almost mm. got a bonus by being there but yeah as soon as that went to because the whole game i was kind of willing them to to, to hang on in there because you kind of got the feeling of spain are going to get a goal at some point because that's kind of what they've been doing mm. um, and then when it got to penalties i thought yeah they're not going to do, do this here yeah, I think with with Spain, it was kind of an interesting one. Like, I think Enrique has left the job now, right? Yeah. He left. He left yeah. the job today, left so that today. didn't take long. That's another manager out the competition, out of a job. There you go, done. Um, <laughs> what do you? Th I think with Spain, it was the whole thing of it just, yeah, passing, but zero ideas, no threat yeah. whatsoever. And even when they brought on Morata, which we've talked about previously in the episodes, where maybe Morata is a better option to come onto the bench, come off the bench, they brought him on. And it didn't really make much of a difference. Um, it seemed like they only have plan A. They only and <laughs> are Spain too married to this tiki taka thing now? Was it even tiki taka? I don't know if it was. Like, no. what what did you think of Spain's performance, Mark? Like how? It, yeah, it just seemed a bit blunt, right? Yeah, exactly that. It, it was keeping the ball, but not doing anything productive with it. And mm -hmm. I think I wrote down that they had over a thousand passes. 77% of possession, but they only had one shot on target the whole game. Yeah. Like, how can that? It, and that jumps up. I think that says it all that it's it's possession based, but it needs to be, it needs to lead to something. And it, and it used to with Spain really effectively lead to something, but I think now it, it doesn't. And they've got the possession part of it, but they don't have that incisive final third piece of the puzzle anymore yeah no i think you're right whereas in the past they would have had a player like david villa who was so dynamic and so like lethal on on counter-attacks as well and such a clinical finisher yeah. they haven't got that now right and i think adam would you still class this as tiki taka because i think tiki taka still had a bit of like slow slow quick 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 this was just yeah slow 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 right I'm just going to use the analogy we use for the Argentina versus Poland match for the last 20 minutes where you had that Simpsons episode where the just the players passed amongst each other and that was basically Spain for this match. Yeah. I mean, it, I do kind of worry about Spain because you think, you, you rightly call out Villa was probably the last generation of a striker where you could mm -hmm. kind of claim they were prolific. And now, like, going forwards, like Morata's there and Sufati then I think you struggle because you kind of like there's uh, Gerard Moreno who plays obviously for Villarreal. He hasn't had a yeah. fantastic season. There was surprises about his omission from this squad as well. Um, 
But then thereafter, I, I don't know who's coming through. I, I'm struggling yeah. to think off the top of my head. There's no one talked about at the under 21 level. They're kind of trying to naturalize a few players, it sounds like at the moment, which, you know, when you're getting into that kind of territory, you kind of wonder what, what's happening at Spanish level. Like they seem to be producing these kind of talented kind of midfielders, but no one that can offer them something. I think they've been kind of floating about the idea of maybe Adama Traore playing up front. And we know like how blunt he is when it comes to like attacks, like great at running at people with oil on his skin, but that's about it. Right. Um, So I think there was always going to be an inquest after this tournament. The fact that Luis Enrique's decided to go and of his own volition kind of says to you that maybe he just didn't see much point going further forward with the projects. Like, there was always promise after that Euros performance, but now you kind of look at this and kind of go, yeah, there's there's going to be issues because Busquets going to go. Now I can see him retiring off the back of this tournament. So then you're left with possibly a situation where you haven't got a really good goalkeeper. Defensively, they're a bit suspect by the fact mm-hmm. that they haven't got many experienced pros there at the back. Midfield is quite promising because it's led by Barcelona. Um, and then you've got basically no one up front. So mm-hmm. I think we could be seeing like a demise with Spain a bit like mm. a few years back where they were kind of like reaching to the point where they got these really talented squads together. So I don't know. I, I do wonder who's going to be the next manager for Spain going forward. Mm. I mean, I can't think off the top of my head who, who would you think would be a great alternative? Would Martinez be considered? I don't know. <laughs> Go back a homecoming, a homecoming. I'm not sure yeah. if he, Oh, I don't know. I, I'm honestly names to replace Luis Enrique. I wouldn't be sure. I, I the only thing I'd be certain of is that, that they'll be Spanish. I'm just not <laughs> sure who it would be. Um, I think with Luis Enrique, it's interesting because before the part, before the World Cup, we were talking about how he's arguably the best coach at the World Cup. Um, he's like the best manager at the World Cup. But I think it kind of raises a really interesting point on club managers versus international managers and how different a a beast it is how different Mm. like the countries that are going far now don't really have managers that have had any success at club level really yeah like gareth southgate is doing a great job with england was not good as a club manager, right? Uh, no, Deschamps yeah. did pretty well at club management, to be fair. Deschamps yeah. did quite well Average, at club management. I, yeah. um, I think Fernando Santos never really did much at club management. Um, Scaloni hasn't. Chiche um, hasn't. Like, I feel no. like a lot of the international management is such a different beast to, to club management mm. that it just takes, when you're trying to get together really intricate attacking patterns you don't have the time to implement that you don't have the yeah. time to implement these highly complex like red exactly. string on a cork board kind of madness it has to be like right how can we be quick effectively uh, or how can we be effective quickly even and i think maybe it was just a bit too complicated for tournament football um and it, it if you don't if you don't have that backup plan then it just becomes an an exercise in i don't know like just treading water i just think it sounded incredibly boring to watch to be honest just 11 well, points passing the ball amongst themselves forever sounded quite may, cool, maybe right? from next week they'll see mcnevich is available and look at his success and go he's our man right <laughs> that's it. <laughs> he that's didn't need anything really he got us through <laughs> the stages so that's a fantastic yeah. record for spain but yeah they, maybe they'll take him off your hands maybe they'll take him off your hands <laughs> um well for spain i think there is a thing of them producing too many of the same type of player i mm. think in 
there's always that thing of like, I don't know, the, the no kid grows up wanting to be Gary Neville or whatever the thing that Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy Carragher said, right? I think every kid in Spain wants to be Xavi, wants to be Iniesta, yeah. right? That's the kind of glory position. That's the like mm-hmm. what all the praise is heaped on those types of players. And they've just produced an incredible amount of highly technical little players, but you need someone to aim for. So I think maybe there's something in the development there that they need to look at. As this World Cup will be for every national governing body, it'll be right, right, what do we need to look at now? What do we need to address? For Spain, it's right, we need to start producing strikers because I don't think they've got many. Like, Mark, what do you think the main problem is with Spain? Where do they start to address this performance? I think, like you say, they've always had in the past not so much a focal point, but they've had a striker that can get them out of a hole in these games that they've been struggling in, whether it's been David Villa or Torres in the past. <clears throat> I, I don't know if they've got that at the minute. I think that, you know, Morata maybe has been that in the past, but I, I don't think he is now. Um, they're not going to rip it up and start again. They're, gonna, they're not going to abandon it, I don't think. They're, they may mm. have to tweak the way they're, the way they're playing, but um, I, I don't think I don't think they're going to abandon it, but it might be interesting to see who, who. I don't know if they've appointed anyone yet. Enrique, they certainly have. Um, when I heard that he's left, so it'll be interesting to see w- which way they go. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure who's being linked to it so far. There's not been really been many names brought up at the moment, but we will keep on top of it as we see it. De La Fuente has taken over in the meantime. Um, I think he's taken over as kind of interim manager, um, but it seems like that's very much not a permanent appointment. So we will see where that goes. But we need to talk about the manager on the other bench, um, Walid Regragui, um, the first African manager, as Basri said, to make it through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Incredible performance. It's just great to see all the African teams this year represented by managers from their own country. It mm. sounds like not much, but that was never a common thing before. It used to always be kind of washed up European managers that ended up in charge <laughs> of uh, African teams. So it's great to see them creating their own coaches and they're making a serious stamp on this tournament. I absolutely love it. Listeners will know that we love African football on this podcast, so I'm very, very happy to see Morocco absolutely killing it and making their own coaches. I just finally want to say Amrabat was absolutely fantastic as well, and I think he arguably could be in team of the tournament come the end of the tournament. He's been he one does, of the man. best midfielders. And I, I always feel like for Fiorentina fans, you'd be like, oh, yes, he's doing so... Oh, crap, he's doing so well. <laughs> like It means he might not be for La Viola for much longer. We'll, we'll kind of find out. But I think already... There's a few teams going, ah, okay. Yeah, how much would that be? I think Juventus have already seen, kind of give some looks. If they can find any more money from those magical accounting books, maybe they'll be able to make a (laughs) bid. Who knows? Um, But we'll catch up on that as well. But what we do need to do is preview the upcoming games. So listeners, for you today, for you tomorrow, for us, you have, oh, what a day. What a day. Mm. Croatia taking on Brazil and Netherlands taking on Argentina. Now, seeming as you are both adequately dressed <laughs> for this fixture, I think we will start with Netherlands versus Argentina. And I'm going to go first. Mark, you can cover Netherlands. Let's do it. What are you expecting from Netherlands? What have you thought of them in the tournament so far? I think that 
they they look like a Netherlands team that haven't been there for a while. I think they they've mm. got a bit. Uh, you know, when when they were struggling for those years, they looked a kind of a jaded kind of. It's almost like they were searching for a their identity. They didn't know who they were anymore, and they seem to have got a bit of that back. I think a little bit of the, of the swagger, a little bit of the belief. Um, I, I think a lot of that probably comes from Van Hal on the sidelines. Um, he's certainly um been on good form as well off the pitch and isn't it in the tournament um i i think i think it's a really difficult game for argentina this i know maybe pre pre-tournament you wouldn't have you wouldn't have put um this one being so close as it is i think this is a 50 50 this could go either way i really do yeah, and, and Adam, what do you think about Argentina? I think Mark's right. It is kind of more evenly balanced than I anticipated. At first thought, I was like, okay, Argentina, get through this. I'm like, ah, do they get through this? Um, I think one thing you have to hand to Holland, I feel like, and in particular Van Hal, he's very astute in terms of his tactics and his approach, right? So I feel like he will not necessarily kind of play the total football all of the time, but he knows the moments when they have to maybe create the opportunities and when they have to pull back and maybe defend a bit more. And I think that was evident in the USA game, for example. He kind of made sure that USA tired themselves out and then he kind of counted. He knew the strengths of his own players and he knew what could be used in certain moments. So I think, yes, we might not look at this squad and kind of say it's star-studied, but mm. he's got them playing a certain style that is winning them games. And I think People at home in Holland, certainly in the Netherlands, are feeling confident. They're feeling like, you know, they probably didn't have a lot of trust about Van Gaal, particularly in terms of his style, but they're actually backing him because, as uh, Mark alluded to, his antics off the pitch are also warming to him as well, like to the general crowd. So I think that's really heartwarming for every fan. And we've kind of joked about it on our pod about some of his mannerisms like hugging reporters kissing Denzel Dumfries and <laughs> yeah. telling his wife he's at home ready for Nookie right um but then uh, if we talk about Argentina yeah I think the one thing you'll say is this is doesn't feel like a complete Argentina squad like I don't think if you look back at some of the um like winning Argentinian sides you'd say they were amazing at, during the whole tournament. I feel like they always struggled, but they got better and better as the tournament's gone on. This time, the one thing I think we probably don't give enough credit is that they have this fantastic run of not conceding a lot of goals up until that Saudi Arabia result, right? So mm. I think even when you go beyond that, they've got a really strong defensive line. Like... In Emiliano Martinez, you've got a fantastic uh, goalkeeper in front of him, Otamendi and Romero. I know Otamendi has a clangor in him, as does Romero at times, but they seem so strong as an Argentinian back line. And then that kind of builds that confidence up ahead of them. They've got experienced pros mixed in with, you know, players that have got probably a bit more legs about them, you know, bit more emphasis in terms of that pace energy like the likes of Enzo Fernandez for example yeah. I've been really interested to see how he kind of continues a little bit of the form that we saw at the first few games because I don't feel we've seen the best of him yet mm -hmm. um but with Messi he just seems to be on this mission like at the moment to kind of make it his tournament at the moment mm -hmm. and that's where it seems to be all about like the players are doing it for him they, they mm. did it at, obviously, the Copa America. They're trying to 
make sure he wins this World Cup this time round. I think it will be a tight game. I would not be surprised if this game goes all the way to penalties myself. Mm. Yeah, I know. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think the what concerns me about the Netherlands is that the USA did still get chances. The USA, if mm. they, we said at the time, if they'd have had a striker, the USA actually could have got through yeah. that game. They just don't have a striker. Um, so I think Netherlands, they still give up chances. And maybe if you do that to Argentina with Messi, it doesn't go the same way. What's good for them is that Lautaro Martinez has been absolutely terrible <laughs> in this tournament. So he's kind of letting a lot of teams off at the moment. But I think there will be chances for Argentina. And I think they're a bit more clinical than the US. I, but then that being said, the Netherlands, they're incredibly clinical when they go forward. Cody Gakpo, what is it? Three goals in four games now. Um, yeah. he, he just seems to score every time he gets the ball. And I think they are like the other side of that US um, performance was that the Netherlands scored every time they went forward or and every mm. time it felt like they were going to score. So I think they're like, they are very dangerous on the break, but it does leave them open. So I think it is very evenly matched. I think you're right. We could see this go to penalties. Um, but I'm going to push you now both for just in one word, Netherlands or Argentina, who goes through? Mark? Netherlands. Adam? Argentina. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I'm going to go Argentina. I'm going to have to go Argentina. I feel like there's a thing with Messi. But we're going to move on to the next game. And it's the earlier game. Uh, for you, four o'clock kickoff in Italy, three o'clock in the UK, Croatia versus Brazil. Now, Brazil absolutely murdering South Korea, as we covered in our last pod, making it look <laughs> super easy with Richarlison in incredible form. Everyone dancing, everyone having a great time, coming up against a Croatia team who do have the capability of boring people to death and are incredibly good in extra time. Um, Adam, I'm going to start with you first this time. Uh, Croatia versus Brazil. What do you expect from this game? Yeah, what do you expect? I I hope we see a Croatia side that actually tries to go for it from the kickoff because I think they've been kind of like absorbing it a bit of late. Yeah, yeah. Like they've been trying to invite the pressure and that's a bit of a weird one for them. Um but then uh, there's an element of me that thinks, are they tired? But they don't don't seem tired. So I can't work them out at this stage. Like I, I do feel there's weaknesses in that Croatia squad. But then equally, I look at the experience that they've got in the likes of Brozovic, you know, Perisic, Modric, and they just seem to be really like they've got a plausible squad. They've got some like outlets that can help them like grind out results. Mm -hmm. Um do one thing that I think is the weakness is probably up top. Now we've talked yeah. about it for a lot and Kramerich, his due, he's probably the only kind of quality player they've got up there. I know we've talked about Maya potentially being that potential going forward as well for generation potentially, but at this moment in time, he hasn't really shown too much apart yeah. from that one game against Canada. So for me, I, I do feel that, if Brazil, and I know they've got quality depth in that midfield, but also defensively, I think if you keep that midfield quiet, then there isn't much that Croatia can offer going forward. Mm -hmm. Like I'd, I've kind of like alluded to it, like Juranovic, he can be hot and cold sometimes uh, on that right-hand side. And you saw Modric having to kind of almost be a wingman for him down that right-hand side in the last match. So I do feel like this could be one of those games where they do struggle. 
Um, I'm expecting Brazil to win this. Not handsomely, though. I think it will be a bit tighter, but I think Brazil will win this probably like 2-1. I think it's mm. going to be a very tight scoreline. Maybe Croatia might score first, but then by inviting the pressure, when you've got the quality that Brazil have got, they've shown it in the last rounds, they can handsomely do it. And I suppose just for Roy Keane, we're just waiting to see what celebration they do. Is it going to be Macarena, Macarena or Wick? Wigfield or something like that. That'd be classic, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I honestly I hope it's completely choreographed and it takes about 20 minutes just to see Roy Keane like pop a vein. <laughs> um yeah. but Mark, what do you are we seeing a return to the fun Brazil, right? Brazil looked like Brazil again. It feels like a while since we've seen exciting, attacking, terrifying Brazil. Like have you enjoyed them? What do you expect from this game? Yeah, I really enjoyed that last game. I enjoyed all the all the dancing and everything around about it because that's what <laughs> you kind of ex- come to expect from Brazil, isn't it? That's what <laughs> Brazil are, um, and I think it is a, a kind of return to kind of the, the Brazil that we, we once knew. Um, it's probably been a long way back from them since that kind of Germany game um, in the semi final. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the probably the year for them there. Um, but coming into the tournament. I always feel that player Brazilian players always play better for Brazil than they do for their club sides, or not always, but yeah. they certainly tend to. Players like Richarlison, they, they just seem to find a different level when they're mm-hmm. playing. Maybe it's because they're playing with players that they've got a better understanding with, I don't know, but I think that's served them as well, quite well in this tournament. And um, I think Neymar being back is a big one for them. I was worried for them when he went down and looked like he was going to be out for the tournament and then Jesus went out the following week and I didn't mm-hmm. think that might that might do for their chances. But Neymar coming back is, is a huge one, I think. And again, similar to Argentina in a way, um, I think he feels the the weight of the of the country on his shoulders when he's he's playing for Brazil and you just hope that he doesn't buckle under it. Same mm-hmm. same for Messi as well. It, you, you can you can sometimes feel that they're carrying that weight on their back a wee bit and yeah get a feel for them sometimes yeah well and i think we're shaping up for an argentina brazil semi-final which is just gonna be absolutely incredible it's what people want to see i'm sorry croatia and um who's your one uh netherlands Holland, fans yeah, but netherlands. yeah everybody wants to see that brazil argentina semi-final i think it's going to be explosive i think brazil should get through this i think it will be close um but yeah brazil should be getting through this one and then on saturday guys um i'm gonna save england france till last let's quickly go portugal morocco we've kind of talked about them before i think morocco could spring a surprise here but with a newly changed portugal who knows I'm going to go Portugal on penalties. Adam, what do you mm. think? Yeah, I, I do feel like if we see the same squads that played in the last round, and I, I ultimately feel like Ronaldo should be benched again for this one, mm. I think then we could see Portugal really go through. Um, unfortunately, I think Morocco, they they will be very conservative again. They will play pragmatically, but I I think they're going to have to be a bit more willing to attack Portugal and leave themselves exposed. And I think it will be those elements that potentially 
might lead to a goal for Portugal because Portugal, I feel, have been very clinical on the break. Yeah. Like when they've had moments where they've been able to kind of attack teams when they've had nothing against them in front of them in that sense, then, yeah, they seem to be much more clinical. Um, like you say, Rafael Leal, we haven't seen the best of him yet, but when he has come on, he's looked a threat every time. And like, I just feel like that could be a game where maybe he mixes it up and mm -hmm. brings him on because you've we've talked about... Morocco play a lot down the wings. So with Hakimi Ashraf, for example, Zayej, for example, Bufal on the other side, they might leave that kind of side very exposed. So do they sacrifice that and be more defensive and mm -hmm. then leave themselves really short in terms of attacking? I don't know. I think it's going to be a tight match. Like you say, it could go all the way in terms of penalties again in this match. Um, but I would say that on that basis, I think Portugal have just that little bit of quality that might help them over the line. Yeah, I think you might be right. Mark, what do you think? What do you expect from Portugal versus Morocco? We will find out another time what Mark expects <laughs> from Portugal versus Morocco. And we are going to move on to <laughs> England versus France. It's the one that we're all looking forward to. The one, it's the big one. It's the biggest it's tie of the round. Massive. It has to be. It's the biggest tie of the round. It's a massive game. I'm already shitting myself. Oh, God, it's going to be horrible. England versus <laughs> France. Mbappe against um, Trippier? No, against, yeah, Trippier, probably. Trippier, or Kyle Kane, Walker. Trent, Alexander-Arnold, yeah, all, all of, of the above. <laughs> it's a good job we've got a lot of right-backs, right? It's a good yes, job we've got exactly. a lot of right-backs. Plenty of people to cover Mbappe. This is a game that, and it's always football does it to you, at the beginning of the week, I was like, ah, you know what? Don't even get your hopes up. Don't even get your hopes up. It's France. Whatever happens, happens. You'll just have to get on with it. And now I'm starting to believe. I've watched too many YouTube videos with patriotic music and inspiring messages, <laughs> and now I feel like we could actually do it. Um, I'm terrified. Adam, what do you think? England versus France. Um, what do you expect the game to be like? And how do you expect Gareth to line up? Uh, I think there's been talk in midweek around the fact that he's going to play a tacking player on that same side that Mbappe plays. So to almost kind of stretch out that side, so almost like give it a pivot in the sense of like you can play your card, but we'll also play this card potentially. Um, I, I almost feel like though he should stick with the team that's got them so mm -hmm. far because I feel like they feel much more comfortable with themselves. I feel like if you overthink it almost and try and put an extra man on Mbappe, let's say for argument's sake, you still leave yourself exposed to Griezmann or you leave yourself exposed to, for example, Giroud, who we know can have a habit of scoring goals. Now, I think it'll be very interesting to see how he plays against the likes of Maguire because I think he's had a very good tournament, um, but yeah. I don't feel he has had necessarily a talismanic player like Giroud that yeah. can be clever and mm. you know I think that's that's the difference I think it'll be interesting to see that battle in particular but I also feel like France are kind of not completely assured at the back for example so defensively mm. I think Poland did kind of flag a weakness in that team yeah. Loris for example was flawed in that game so clearly I think if anything Southgate should look at that video and kind of go right, set pieces, what can we do that exposes Lloris? In particular, I don't think defensively in the centre to, like Upamecano, yes, he is, he's got his strengths, but he's also got some weaknesses. It's been yeah. flawed in the Bundesliga. So I feel like there are opportunities for England to exploit, 
I think equally France are wary of England and they know yeah. about their threats. I think they recognise the likes of Kane. They also recognise Bellingham. I think everyone has. I mean, he just feels like an increasing um, like a commodity. I feel like he's just so mature on the ball. He's clever, but he's just got the all-round package, which every nation would love to have mm-hmm. in their midfield. I don't think there'll be any midfield, like even if you said Brazil, I think they would easily have Jude Bellingham in their yeah, sides. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and, you know, that's talking about how highly he is as a player. I think he's really grown over the last few seasons. So I think England go into this with confidence. I, I, I feel that here at the moment, everyone's looking forward to it. I don't think yeah. there's a sense of... I think in the past you would have been a bit more like scared about your prospects. This time around, it doesn't feel like that. And I feel like this could be a result that goes to England. I think I, I feel like this could be a 2-1 win for England, I'm going to call it. Um, so uh, let, let's see what Mark thinks, because well, I'm gonna, being from I'm, Scotland, he yeah, might give yeah. the pessimistic view yeah, right yeah. now. But let's see. Yeah, Mark, what are you expecting from this game? And... Yeah, what do you what have you thought of England in the tournament so far? I don't know if you were going to watch me speak about England or not. Um, <laughs> yeah, England have got a brilliant England have got a fantastic squad, a, a really really brilliant squad. Um, my my concern for England, not that I'm that concerned to be honest, but my concern for England <laughs> is has always been uh, Southgate. I think I, I, I look at two two big tournaments the the Euros final and the World Cup semi-final both games when England were in front and both games when the opposition take control and Southgate wasn't able to the required changes to get through those games and I just wonder tomorrow he, he, he always earns errs on the side of Kind of pragmatism. I, I do yeah. wonder if tomorrow he might, um, or Saturday rather, he might um, be a little bit too pragmatic and a little bit too defensive. And um, you know, he's got so much attacking talent. I think they're quite similar to France in a way, where all their strengths lie further up the field, and the weaknesses mm-hmm. in the team are at the back. Mm. Um, so you would imagine it would be an attacking game because of that. But I, I don't know if it will be. I, I think it might be a, a cagey one because, as you say, I think France are wary of England, but similarly, England know um, all about them. I would say about about chain formations. If if I was in that French team and I heard that England were changing their formation to play against my team, I'd be thinking, "Yeah, we've got them. They're worried, yeah. they're worried about us." And yeah. I think yeah. Mbappe in particular as well. Well, I think that empower a player who's already. It, feeling confident and feeling good about himself by the other team changing the entire form- formation just to combat you. It, it, it's, a, it's a healthy compliment, I think. So um, I, I, I can't predict an England victory because I'll never be able to go out the front door again. But I, I think <laughs> it'll go all the way in penalties again. Nice. Well, I, you know what? I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, <laughs> there's two players that I do kind of quickly want to kind of give just maybe keep an eye on these players. I think Jordan Henderson absolutely changed the England team, absolutely changed the entire midfield. I hope Gareth Southgate sticks with him. He's a player that gets so much stick for not being flashy enough or not being exciting, but he is an incredibly, incredibly good midfielder. 
And I feel like he brought, he allowed Bellingham to do so much more just by his presence being there. I thought he was fantastic, Jordan Henderson. Not just the goal, but I think, I hope Southgate sticks with him. I really feel like the midfield was a bit more rounded with him and Rice kind of sitting back. Bellingham was able to do a bit more. Um, and then for France, Antoine Griezmann. The way that he has changed his game has been fascinating. I think we're looking at Ronaldo. We're talking about Ronaldo, a player who has been unable to change his game and ended up burning every bridge behind him. I think players have to change. Messi has changed the type of player he he's, he is mm. now. Rooney did it. Like Players change, and I think Griezmann is doing a very, very good job at just being that number 10, just sitting behind mm. the striker, those little passes, bringing everyone yeah. else into play those through balls, I think he's been genuinely incredible for France. And I think he's a player that England should be keeping an eye on because he's going to tie everything together. I think he's been fantastic for France. And it's good to see because things haven't been going well for him at Atletico. Things aren't going well for anybody at Atletico <laughs> at the minute, but particularly for Griezmann. And it's good to see him just go to France and ball out and just, I like him as a player. He's a good player. Um, so yeah, two players there that I think could be key, but people might not be focusing on. Um, but, Guys, we are going to take a very quick break. That is the World Cup done for now. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk things Juventus right after this. My name is David Artel and you're listening to the Anglo-Italian pod. And we are back and it is time for this week's episode of the soap opera Juventus FC. And this week... There's not been too many advancements. I think there's been a little bit, a little bit more detail, a little bit more kind of like um, sugar on top mm. to kind of keep us interested. But of course, we're talking about the financial shitstorm that Juventus FC find themselves in. Um, this week, I think the highlights were Giorgio Collini's messages, um, basically yes. saying, guys, the bonuses are coming. Always in written form. That's always the best way to do it, right? <laughs> um, so that's been the highlight. And... A deal with Genoa, which has perked a lot of interest. Um, this is the deal for... Now, I think the name is Portanova. Um, mm. So, he was traded with Genoa. Um, he went to Genoa alongside a player called Petrucci. Petrucci is now in Serie C. And Portanova has just gone to prison for sexual assault. Now, when he was sold to Genoa he was already charged with this crime, right? He was already like the, it was in the process of being um, kind of sent to prison. He's now been sent to prison for six years, I think it is. Um, and now that was an 18 million pound deal swap to Genoa for Ravella, who was Genoa's brightest talent, is a very, very good player. Um, and these two players and Ravella were deemed to be the same value. Um, and they were traded. Now, this is kind of typical of what this scandal has been, mm. but it's just an example of what it is, right? But Mark, I'm going to go to you because we've not heard your views on it yet. We've talked a little bit about it. How do you feel about Juventus in general? And how do you feel about this scandal? In, in general, I'm not a Juventus supporter, but I don't go along the lines of a lot of other people who hate them. I don't hate okay. them. But... Um, <clears throat> um, yeah, Juventus, it's, it's kind of depressing, isn't it? It's, you think you would have learned the lessons from from mm. 2006 and everything that happened then, and you would think, you know, surely it can't happen again. And that's kind of what I thought when the, when the news first thought, you know, surely not Juventus again. Surely they learned their lesson. But, um, yeah. no, and, and you've got all those those stories, like the, the, the Genoa 
play it interwoven into it, which is horrible. I was just reading a bit about um, Portnoy um, going to change things, and it, it's just, yeah, it's it's happened again. It's so frustrating, and people who talk down Italian football always kind of use that the the cultural play and that as a as a mm-hmm. stick to beat it with, and mm-hmm. you know you 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 try and defend it to people um, who who like to kind of be down on Italian football, but it's so hard. It happens again, and it's Juventus again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I am finding myself defending Italian football to my friends in England again. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's really great. You should watch it, I promise. And they do find it harder and harder to believe. Um, but the so the information that's kind of come out this week, Chiellini's messages um, mm. confirming that, and the idea is that these bonuses, so they told, um, they put into on social media that all the players have taken, they're refusing four months pay, right? They're not having four months pay to help the club continue with the running cost during COVID it's now been kind of basically confirmed that they were given, still paying them, but off the books, right? Under the table, mm. not figure it. It probably Pavel Nedved with brown bags, right? He looks like a type, <laughs> but I don't know. It's probably something along those lines. With some handcuffs along the way. Right? <laughs> yeah. <But laughs> Maybe fluffy <clears throat> ones. Sorry. Yeah, but I think he, it seems like this is now tying in Ronaldo alongside it. He's yeah. now suing Juventus for 20 million that they've promised him, but haven't given him. Um, it's just getting messier and messier by the day, Adam. Like, how do you think this is going to go? And how, like, how much detail is going to come out? There's going to be so much more, right? I think there'll be more. I mean, uh, so if we go back to how it started, Consob kind of said to Syria and the, the uh, Italian FA at the time, essentially, that they've got about 50 transfers that they are scrutinising because they didn't think the legalities of these uh, transfers were correct. Some of it linked to amortisation, which mm-hmm. we know is subject to, um, like, obviously the financial reports that they have to do each year. But there's also around these valuations, as you allude to in the intro as well. Um, but 42 of those transfers were directly with Juventus activities. There's also 17 players involved with these secret payments. Mm-hmm. So you kind of go, yes, this gets murkier and murkier the more you delve into it. And I think the fact that a few weeks ago when we were doing our live stream and that kind of like breaking news came through that the whole board had resigned immediately kind of indicates how bad the situation is mm-hmm. and how engrossed the whole setup has been in terms of like protecting the values of Juventus and trying to just sweep it under the carpet and no one will know but clearly the fact that they haven't declared this as part of their ongoing you know accounts kind of alludes to the fact that they are trying to hide a lot of these payments they're trying to try and manipulate the system the fact that it also kind of brings in Fabio Paradici, who you are loving because being an Arsenal fan and him being at Spurs, <laughs> that kind of helps the, your case out a bit more there. Um, so, yeah, it, it just seems to get worse and worse. I, I don't know to what extent this goes now. And it, it does feel mm-hmm. like the more that we hear about it, the more that the punishment has to be really harsh for Juventus. Like how, like previously, they sort of got themselves out of being relegated to Serie C to just being relegated to Serie B. Mm. On this occasion, what we're talking about is that they've basically financial fraud. They've created fraud. Um, So that's going to have its own fine. 
But then also as a league, you kind of have to set an example to say you cannot get away with this. So therefore, there's got to be a points deduction. But there's an argument that, you know, we were talking last season about Salernitana being potentially mm-hmm. relegated because they had a joint owner of a chairman at the same yeah, league, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, that for me, to a good degree, I understand why you wouldn't have it and you wouldn't want to promote it. But that seems hot, like a little bit more lenient compared to like going out of your way to try and cheat the system. This mm. is cheating the system. Now, you shouldn't like promote this, especially with a fan base like Juventus who are really well supported in Italy. So therefore, you've got to set the example to say cheats never prosper, right? And mm-hmm. unfortunately, I, I do feel like Juventus have got this ingrained kind of attitude to kind of say we have a right because we are the best club in Italy. Mm-hmm. We give you the commercial value of Serie A, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen it ourselves, Rory, with fans yeah. of Juventus trying to protect this face of we are Serie A. Well, yeah. sorry, actually, who's the club that has been prospering in the last few years? It's definitely not Juventus. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the example has to be set. Does the league have the balls? That is the question. Well, I think this is, and with in terms of the league, I, I was reading something today that said, now the only way that they would be able to relegate them to Serie B, in theory, is if they could prove that with, if they hadn't cooked the books, they would have failed to get their license to play in Serie A before the season started. Now, it's very unlikely that Juventus, despite making record losses for Italian football, mm. I think it was $256 million they lost in a year, yeah they still probably would have been able to achieve that license. Now, this was on a Juventus fan blog I was reading. So again, it may be a fairly biased view of what can and can't happen. But I think what the really interesting thing is, is when UEFA get involved, because Agnelli also happens to be one of the people who's been banging the European Super League drum the hardest (laughs) alongside Perez. So I think UEFA aren't particularly going to be light-handed with any punishments. I think even if Serie A and FIGC, even if they say, no, you know what, it's just a points deduction, I think UEFA might turn around and say European ban. Like I think UEFA Mm. might be a lot heavier-handed than the Italian authorities are. What do you think, Mark? What do you think would be like a just punishment and what do you expect to happen? I, I, I don't know. Does, does, does previous come into it? You know, does this form mm. come into it? And if you're a criminal and you go to courts and you've got previous convictions, it counts against you and you get punished harder yeah. down the line. Mm. So does that come into play as well as it's not their, not their first offence by any, by any means? Um, I, but I, there's 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 so many um like you say with Agnelli and then you've got UEFA the, the potential there I don't think Serie A can go light if they think UEFA are going to go hard because it will mm. kind of make Serie A look, look weak so I wonder if they maybe will um have a conversation between them and um decide jointly what, what the punishment should be and I don't know maybe that would be more more a european um domestic relegation maybe that would kind of keep both sides happy mm. 
Mm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on. And weirdly, in a twist that nobody saw, it feels like it's made Allegri's position even safer. Apparently, they turned around. <laughs> they turned down his resignation. When the board, all the board resigned, he tried to resign as well. And they were like, oh, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. <laughs> you are staying here, mate. So didn't expect to see that happening. But... <laughs> We will keep you. We will keep you up to date with Juventus and the ongoing uh, soap opera that is that football club. Um, but for now, guys, I think that's everything. I think all we've got to yeah. do now, really, is look forward to the World Cup. And as always, we're going to send you out with our cards of Qatar. Three stories of three migrant workers who lost their lives in the build-up to this tournament. The first story is Zobair Ahmed. In February 2020, Farzana Akhtar lost her husband and gave birth to their first daughter. Instead of celebrating a new life, she had to go to the airport and claim Zobair, Ahmed's dead body, along with $410 and a death certificate. He was 32 and had worked as a driver in Qatar for nine years. The official cause of death said strangulation. It was unclear if he committed suicide or accidentally ended up hanging in his helmet strap. I refuse to believe that he would have taken his own life, the widow says. I see no reason why. Purparani Tamang. After a mandatory medical examination, Purparani Tamang was considered completely healthy and received her work visa. Once in Qatar, she got a job as a cleaner, which she was happy with because she did not have to work outside in the sun, says her mother. One day she was taken to the hospital. She told us there was no reason to worry, but a few days later I learned that she had died. I just cannot believe she's gone. Her body landed at Kathmandu Airport just four days after she died and her mother travelled there to receive it. Our daughter, who went to support her family, left full of life and came home dead. Last one, Bishal Ryan. In February 2020, the family picked up the body of their 20-year-old Bishal Ryan at the airport. The company did not say anything beside that he died in a car accident in Qatar's capital, Doha, on January the 27th, 2020. He had only worked in Qatar for nine months when this happened, says his 47-year-old father, Bipal Ryan. After receiving the body, Bishal's mother has been paralyzed and the father is now trying to survive with his disabled wife and the two children in Bairab in Kishoraganj in central Bangladesh. <laughs>